0: for myself john and my friend chris talk about a couple movies around a theme of our choice chris how are you on this fine
1: cold day i am good sir happy new year it is 2024 it most how many years is. have we been doing this now i don't know but i feel like we've been doing it for quite a while
0: <laughs> i mean we certainly haven't been keeping track of like anniversaries or uh, episode numbers really that much so why start now but it's you know <laughs> but it definitely is a new year i i can i can pretty much look at a calendar and guarantee that so yeah
1: no one needs so i i i think we are one away from our 50th episode uh maybe this is this is our 49th this could technically be our 50th if we count the uh kurosawa episode zero but let's just call it 49 uh we've been doing this for a good number of years still stoked to be doing it uh it is cold it is chilly i know the storm that is supposed to be hitting us in a day or two is hitting you now so i think more importantly how are you doing
0: Uh, Well, uh, in accordance with the emergency text message I got from the government saying to turn off all non-essential appliances last night, uh, we managed to avoid a a blackout uh, and uh you know we've we've been okay so far but if uh if this podcast uh if i cut out at a certain point uh this episode might not happen at all or might happen in a very uh, very condensed form uh, we'll <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll have to play it by ear i suppose um today's episode is going to be about uh mr albert brooks um the origins of this episode came up. Uh, I think we, we hinted at it last time, uh, when you had said, uh, or we had talked about the possibility of doing a life affirming, uh, some life affirming movies. And, uh, for last month that ended up us just pivoting into doing a Jack Tati episode. And, uh, for this episode, the other one that you had been considering that I had completely forgotten at the time, uh, was a film by Mr. Albert Brooks, um, which we've now just pivoted into doing an Albert Brooks episode. Uh, (laughs) I hadn't really been familiar with Mr. Brooks's like directing films. I mean, obviously like for, for me, Albert Brooks starts with Hank Scorpio from the Simpsons. Like that's, uh, like for people of, of my particular age group, I think that's, that's not a, that's not uncommon necessarily. Um, but a year or two ago, Criterion threw a bunch of his stuff on, uh, probably around the release of defending your life. And, uh, I just went through and blazed through a bunch of his earlier stuff. And, uh, had a really good time with it um and so when the opportunity came up to do uh you know an albert brooks episode i was like you know what i don't even have to like i don't even have to do any homework for this one i know what i know what i want to talk about <laughs> and uh you i mean you already came in with a thought so uh any further thoughts on mr brooks before we get started
1: no i think uh, I, I... I think you're pretty clear with kind of the context for how this episode came about. Um, I'm not going to make a secret of it. So one of the films we are going to be discussing is defending your life because that was my life affirming episode. Uh, when we talked about, you know, what did we want to do for that? I said, this is the film that I would want to bring in. And that kind of parlayed into, Hey, why don't we just do a full Albert Brooks episode? Um, I am older than you. Um, so for me, um, Albert Brooks was, that guy who I had seen on cable when I was a kid, um, uh, Real Life, Modern Romance, Lost in America, were always playing on like HBO or Cinemax um, when I was growing up. But it wasn't until um, and we won't go too much into it. It wasn't until Defending Your Life that I became like, oh, this is a guy who has who is speaking to me and is and is speaking about very specific things. And then getting older and kind of seeing the films from the perspective of someone who has now become interested in film and filmmaking and authors um, and writers and directors looking at that with that. eye now it's opened up a whole new world uh, to his filmmaking. Um, And I know we've talked a lot about, especially from your perspective, you coming to him as an actor first, particularly with the voiceover work in the Simpsons or um, his incredible performances, whether it's in broadcast news or in um, drive. Um, And that for me came much Later, but I think all around, um, Albert Brooks is just someone just kind of almost indescribably talented uh, in whatever kind of perspective you want to view him from. So it was exciting to jump back into the films and and in the case of your pick, see a film that I had never seen before. I'd only seen clips here and there, um, and finally got to sit down and watch it in its in, in entirety. So I'm excited to jump into this.
0: Well, let's not, uh, let's not beat around the bush. Let's talk about our first movie for the episode, which is Real Life.
1: Hello, I'm Albert Brooks. I've just completed a motion picture so exciting that the following announcement will be presented in 3D so you can literally feel the excitement. You will find special glasses under each of your seats. Put them on now, won't you? Oh, if you happen to be in a theater that has no glasses, don't worry. You can share in the fun, too. Simply turn to the person you're sitting next to and borrow a piece of red and blue cellophane. Then put one over each eye like this. Got it? Good. Now we're all ready to enter into the world of 3D. All
0: right, so Real Life is Albert Brooks's first uh, directing movie. came out in 1979 and is at apparently a spoof of a... Uh, Uh, program from 1973 called an american family um i guess it has some place in history as being credited as like the first uh american reality tv show um this is not a uh again my coming to this was mostly just when criterion threw all of uh, a bunch of his earlier movies uh on the channel for a bit but i had never heard of this program that it was apparently spoofing um but for me what uh, is uh what sort of stands out for me as an immediate reaction when I watched it the first time and certainly watching it again for this podcast was how this, this ends up being a, a a movie that makes fun of reality TV, like 20 to 30 years before it becomes an, a bonafide phenomenon that exists. And like it is like the, I guess it would be good to at least give a, a real quick concept, which is that um, Albert Brooks plays a a movie producer called Albert Brooks, um, and I think that the distinction here, uh, as we'll talk about the you know how he shows up often in his movies, is a particularly asshole version of himself. Um, he, he wants to make a. He wants to make a movie that captures the real drama, the real comedy, the essence of real life in a real family. And so his plan is to, uh, with the help of uh, various uh, technology, camera crews, psychologists, that kind of stuff, uh, film this normal American family uh, for a year without intruding into their lives uh without just being fly on the wall to capture the real essence the real uh you know the the stuff that is more interesting than the stuff that gets put into movies typically um and we'll talk about you know the, the ins and outs of that but what what eventually happens is it immediately goes off the rails um in ways that uh and, and of course they get completely entw- entwined and tangled in their lives. And it completely disrupts the whole premise of the, uh, of the project, which is to, you know, just capture normal, regular life. And it ends in such a crescendo of madness that, uh, uh and I think you and I both experienced this, which is that we both were having a good time watching the movie. And then when the ending hits, uh, uh, it was just immediately reaching for like a higher rating on Letterbox than we otherwise yeah. would have. Um, Chris, uh, this was your first time. You said that this uh, off mic, that this was the only one of his movies you hadn't seen yet. So yeah. uh, I'm curious about your, uh, I'm curious about your experience uh, going through this one.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and we'll talk about the ending later, but it, yeah, to me, this was a perfectly fine funny movie until the end and the end, like it's a full star bump when you see the actual ending of the movie. Um, what's interesting for me is having now my first time seeing this years after the reality phenomenon, you know, has continued to just be this pervasive thing in our lives. Um, What I really took from this was not so much the satire of reality television, because at the time, to your point, um, An American Family was kind of the first thing of its kind back in 1973. This is in 1979. Um, Reality television, as we know it now, certainly hasn't become anything as of yet. So the thing that I really took from this was not so much the satirization of the reality aspects, but the satirization of the attempt to capture reality when you yourself are... A producer who is looking for a very, um, who is looking for a very specific type of reality, and it's the reality that you only find in movies. So this is a this is a doomed experiment the second it starts because one of the things that I love. About this movie. And I love about Albert Brooks as, as I I, I kind of watch more films for the course of this episode, he is very good at playing a very certain type of character who has a gigantic flaw that he magnifies. For the purpose of the movie. And in this particular one, he is he is part of the Hollywood in circle. So for him, reality is defined by Hollywood and defined by those movies. So he wants to get at reality, but he is constantly interjecting both himself and his perception of what he thinks reality to be, to make this as, I'm using huge air quotes for an audio podcast, as as realistic and as reality-focused as possible. Um, And it's Brooks's performance more than anything else that makes this film win for me because he is just (laughs) such a dumbass. He's such a, just a conniving, kind of weaselly, um... He's such a A snake. Shallow. He's, yeah, (laughs) but like his, and this is right. I I think it's, he is unlike almost any other person in Hollywood. He plays despicable characters almost all the time. Um, But they're always funny. You always laugh. You never want to be Albert Brooks. But he always finds a way to make you laugh. And like for, for me, one of the first like things in this is when he's walking through and he's at the Institute of Human Behavior and he's talking about it. He is always very cautious to make sure that you, the viewer, are aware of how expensive this is, how much money is being spent on this. And then there's a scene later on where he gives up his giant screen TV um, and gives it to it's the Warrens, right? Or no, it's the Jaegers. The Jaegers uh, uh, across the street. Um, because he he, they're not talking. He's trying to like make something happen to get some to get some reality because he doesn't like the reality he's actually getting. So he gives them his giant screen TV. He lives across the street from them in a house that he bought for himself, but he makes the crew stay at a travel lodge. <laughs> and as he's bringing the TV into the house, he keeps saying to um, Charles Grodin, who plays the husband, uh, maybe one of the best. I would say maybe the second or third best Charles Grodin's performance I've ever seen, after the Great Muppet Caper, which might be my favorite, and then Midnight Run with Yeah, it. I
0: was gonna it's say Robert Midnight T- Run has to be on there. Yeah, two
1: bona classics. This might be the third best Grodin performance. But as they're bringing it, in, he constantly says, and it's really expensive, you know. So I'm just I'm giving it to you, but I want you to know this was a very expensive television. And like that line is Albert Brooks in this movie in a nutshell. Like he is, he wants reality, but he he wants it on his terms and with his specific view. So. For for that, um, I do think it is really funny. I I think it also is probably thinking back of all the other films, it's probably his most gag-heavy movie. It, it's the it's 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 the movie that the most relies on kind of jokes as opposed to experience to kind of draw the humor out.
0: But especially the first, um, uh, the first chunk of the movie oh, the which first is, chunk. is about like where they're going through the testing process. They're showing you the testing process of like yeah. how they figure out, you know, test hundreds of families to figure out which is the most normal one uh, to, uh, to, to, to go with. Um, that's probably the most like obviously comedic thing. Cause it doesn't rely on plot. It's just, you know, set up punchline just, you know, yeah. rapid fire. And
1: I think, that's probably the weakest part of the movie for me. Like, like the movie really kicks off once they start getting into it. And then it's the circumstances and the situations that the humor is derived from, not from, Hey, look at this visual joke. And uh, although the visual joke, of uh, them using CGI to perfectly map people's faces, oh, God, that one, that, <laughs> and it that, looks like a giant me. egg. This guy's head. Uh, that was hilarious.
0: I really, I, I, I really liked the explanation of the, like, and there, again, there's some prescience here, but also it's just really funny to watch the 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 mobile camera that just sits as like a helmet on the person's uh, face oh. and is recorded digitally. It's not recorded to film, which again, is not a technology that had actually existed yet, but any, t- like the explanation of how the camera works and then also any time he very very carefully and strategically picks moments where you yes. see those camera people just walk into frame with their ridiculous outfits. And it's funny every time.
1: That is by far the best part of this movie are those, are those cameras and the headgear and how they work.
0: Cause it looks and like it, if essentially like it, for lack of a better term, it almost looks like someone's wearing half of a diving suit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, <laughs> they look like robots. Um, but you 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 touched on something when you were talking about it that i think people not enough people talk about and i think it's a credit to brooks as a director he is phenomenal at framing a scene And directing is he like, like you said, it is pitch perfect. Every time you see one of those guys in the headset for the camera, it is hilarious every single time. And like, because they're so heavy, they have to stand a certain way. So often they stand with their legs spread wide apart and and kind of like bent like they're sumo wrestlers trying to hold this enormous helmet head up. Um, And it's great. It is by far the funniest thing throughout the movie is the constant intrusion of those helmets yeah you never see the other camera i like do you even see the other camera that he talks about in the beginning of the film there's these japanese the wall wall ones infrared cameras yeah
0: yeah i don't think so (laughs)
1: yeah
0: (laughs) i i also want to like again obviously brooks here is the is the centerpiece and uh uh, next to him is uh, charles groden of course i wanted to specifically shout out uh, j.a preston as one of the psychologists because he's the he's the voice of reason he's the he's the foil to albert brooks who constantly is just pushing back being like you're manipulating these people you're like he's the voice of reason trying to like push back against uh Albert Brooks's increasing monstrosity, um, yeah, um, in a way that reminded me of like uh, some of the Marx Brothers stuff. How they they have people who are just constantly like just undercutting and like trying to push back on their ridiculous hijinks.
1: And I, then, but what's weird is, is that cause he is fantastic. He plays the voice of reason. He almost plays kind of like the audience surrogate as you're watching this madness unfold. And you're saying to yourself, this can't be healthy or good. And he says that, but then he leaves and goes and just like, yeah, he goes and publishes a book. Just as immaturely as everybody else.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, um, I guess we should probably uh, chat a little bit about the uh, the the ending, which I think to set up the ending would mean we actually go through a little bit of how the plot unfolds itself, which is of course that the second like once you actually dive in, the first chunk of the movie is just setting up the the premise of the movie, which has a bunch of you know a lot of fun jokes that aren't necessarily plot related, but once you actually start spending time with the family, it's immediately obvious that just the presence of the cameras themselves are intrusive and that it is uh, disruptive to their lives and they are immediately regretful of the decision. And so Brooks uh, starts to come up with increasingly unhinged ways to try and like get them to do something that is dramatic. Uh, particularly when he's trying to get the the wife to let him accompany him to her gynecologist appointment. Yeah. And the, he has a confrontation with the gynecologist where he finally gets Who doesn't want to be on camera he doesn't uh uh he doesn't want to agree to any of this and he's trying to tr- talk him down and be like no no no, it's fine we'll be respectful we'll be totally fine We're respectful and that's when he realizes oh you're the baby broker <laughs> because he had been featured on uh g- was it 60, 60 minutes, minutes right yeah yeah uh that i I just want to highlight that joke because that was one of my favorites but effectively people started like people start getting mad people start getting anxious it starts getting insane insane people leave the project and the the movie ends where he the, the the project has fallen apart and brooks is talking to one of his uh uh robot camera looking dudes uh completely losing his mind about like how does how do we end this movie because people you know paid to see the movie we're going to give them an ending and the guy yeah the says, movie well,
1: ended prematurely we should say so yeah. like everything going on the institute and the studio were like we need to cut our losses this you're hurting this family we're not going to make any money on this right there's a there's a whole great side bit with uh, the head of the studio is so busy he refuses to come so he's always on speaker and he's constantly insisting like you got to have a Paul Newman or a you got to have two movies movie right so so the movie is being shut down and this leaves albert albert brooks in a in a conundrum how do you in
0: a a conundrum i'm not sure how to end the thing and he's he's making fun of this uh camera person for not having seen gone with the wind he's like and you know how they you know they burned down i think he says like they burned down atlanta or something and then that's just sort of when he starts to like like he, he starts to smile like this insane person smile on his face and as the institute people are going through all of the the basically all the liability paperwork with the family to be like you're not going to sue us right this is you know we're just going to make sure that we're going to go through this one at a time while they're doing that in their house albert brooks goes into their house and starts burning down the whole house he starts like everything (laughs) on fire as people are there as they're trying to convince him not to do it he's like look how beautiful it is look how beautiful it is
1: to the soundtrack of gone with the wind (laughs) and
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there's even a shot where you see him grab the the robot cameraman guy peter uh, to try and get into to to get a nice shot of it but it's blurry he's like it's blurry i can't see it and you can't even get a good shot of you know everything happening and then you get this um you know this uh, this end text that says that you know they got their money their house was rebuilt the doctor who had left the project wrote a um uh his his book didn't sell especially well uh you know all that stuff it's uh it, it, it's one of those again this is a this is a this is a spoof comedy uh about that made you know less than a million dollars at the box office spoofing a, a pro a, a tv show from 1973 there's not there's like the there's nothing in this movie that should reach the crescendos of you know albert brooks going insane lighting up, burning a whole house down but i do really appreciate that it goes as hard as it does in the ending
1: yeah, and it's literally, like, when we say the ending, this is the last, like, three to four minutes of the film, and you have no indication that this is where the ending is going. So with three to four minutes left, like, he is so despondent, he's <laughs> he's supposed to go dress as a clown and go to a children's hospital, but he's lamenting the lack of an ending to this camera person, and it's literally in the last three minutes that all of a sudden... So the strains have gone with the wind. You see him like it's kind of crazy. He, he he doesn't just casually set the house on fire. He starts running through the house with a torch, lighting, and every, like a light, <laughs> raving like a madman, raving like a madman, lighting everything on fire. People freak out and run out of the house, and the movie ends with them just sitting outside, watching the house burn as those as as those kind of uh, tags that you alluded to show up on the screen. It's batshit crazy of an ending.
0: You mentioned about how he tends to play despicable characters a lot and there's a there's a fearless quality to that that i really um admire in his in his performing like the, the other person i think of as as embodying a similar uh as, as a similar mode of just like i will happily play the worst pieces of shit possible would be someone like will forte um like especially in a movie like mcgruber uh you know where he's yeah. you know humping the ghost of his dead wife or something <laughs> like
1: <laughs> but I, but i think the difference there is is that like will forte is doing that for laughs right like will forte will forte will and god bless his soul may he live forever because <laughs> mcgruber is wonderful that dude will do anything to get a laugh but it's always in service of the laugh and i think what's different about albert brooks is it's always in service of the laugh but he is definitely commenting on something by being that despicable. Like Will Forte is not commenting on being anything other than he's being disgusting. And it makes me laugh uproariously when he shoves a celery stalk down his ass. There is no commentary on society, but it is maybe one of the funniest things I've ever seen, except for when he gets, um, what's his face to do it at the end of that movie. Why is his name uh, escaping me? Ryan Phillippe, when, you know, maybe that's the best part of that movie. Uh, But for Albert Brooks, it's always in service to a larger theme. And I think um, it's a huge credit that he is able to be um, genuinely funny and not make you want to just throw, like, your throw your remote at the television or throw your phone at the movie theater screen. Um, I think it's a credit to his writing and a credit to certainly in this movie and I think all of his movies up to Defending Your your Life um, to have Monica Johnson as his co-writer as she is here with Harry Shearer. Speaking of Spinal Tap, Harry Shearer was a co-writer on this film. Um, so there's always that female perspective interjected in. So it's not, uh, it never feels as t- horrible as it could be. Cause I think Albert Brooks is someone who knows how to play in the sandbox and touch a lot of things and be collaborative in that process. Um, that was a great thing to kind of see the thread of, in all the earlier films, this or modern problems or lost in America, Monica Johnson as his constant co-writer, you know, and, and helping to shape these things so that, as terrible as he is, he's not irredeemable. And I think that's the beauty of these films. And it's right there in real life. He's disgusting. Uh, He is shallow. He is not doing this for the reasons that he's saying, but he is not irredeemable. Uh, And I think that that's that's beautifully shown here. And then I think it comes to its apex in the next movie we're going to talk about.
0: I think that uh, our next movie is going to add... Uh, is it, going to take that vibe and then add uh, some, a, a different, uh, put it into a different context that gives it a much different uh, ultimate impact uh, and we've, ta- we've mentioned it already uh, why don't we talk about our next movie which is Defending Your Life
1: Okay, so Defending Your Life, a 1991 film, um, again, written and directed and starring uh, Brooks. This one is a solo writing effort. Uh, It also stars uh, Rip Torn, Meryl Streep, Lee Grant, uh, Buck Henry is very briefly in it. But um, this is uh, much more of a high concept comedy that I think anything Brooks had done to this point. Um, essentially Brooks prays a guy named Daniel Miller. He is an advertising executive. It's his birthday. He's picking up a brand new BMW convertible.
0: Not the nice Um, one, but just the, not the seven series,
1: Yeah, (laughs) but it's still, I mean, it's a BMW convertible. It's, it's not a, not a shabby looking car. Um, It's his birthday. Within the first five minutes of the film, he has already exhibited everything that you need to kind of know about this character. Um, And he gets in his car and he's driving home. He's going to take a long weekend uh, on his birthday to be by himself. And he's one of his gifts. He got a bunch of compact discs, falls to the ground. He reaches over to pick it up. He hits a bus. And the next thing you know, he is in Judgment City, this beautiful paradise where he will go on I don't want to call it trial because they all are very clear this isn't a trial, uh, but where he will sit for four days um, and sit in judgment of his life. Uh, Ultimately, uh, the powers that be there will decide if he is ready to move forward. Um, And kind of expand his brain in another realm of consciousness, or if he has to go back uh, to Earth and try it again to uh, reconcile whatever shortcomings they find within the examination of his life. So that's the concept of the film. Um, It is is a romantic comedy. Meryl Streep is also there. So uh, as Albert Brooks is defending his life in Albert Brooks fashion, he meets and falls in love with Meryl Streep, uh, which sets up the conflict. She is a woman who is so well put together, is so luminescent. I think, in fact, the first time you see her, which is at a uh, comedian's kind of stand-up night, yeah, like, shitty, she's almost- she, uh, Nightclub, yeah. Yeah, she's <clears throat> almost glowing. I, I mean, to call her luminescent in this film is a disservice to how wonderful she is in it. Uh, this also may be my favorite Riptorn torn performance of all time. Dear
0: God, he's so good in this movie. And
1: that's taking into account the dodgeball- <laughs> The dodgeball movie, <laughs> where he is wonderful, but um, this is uh, this is very much my life-affirming movie. So when we talk about uh, in real life, right? Albert Brooks is personifying this kind of Hollywood shallow producer here. He is magnifying and illuminating all the fears and insecurities that, that, that someone going through life at at that age or that stage of their life has. And what happens when you let fear kind of guide your life. And so that's what the movie is ostensibly about, but where I kind of want to start our conversation Um, John, is one of the things that I find incredible about this movie, besides the performances and besides the comedy, there are some jokes. Like, this is a joke. This is a movie where all that, there are a couple of gags, but all of the comedy is in the dialogue and in the discussion. Um, But what's incredible, I think, about this film that doesn't get enough credit is the world building. And, like, not even the world building, but the universe building of this. Situation. We're used to so many m- movies. I know you had talked about, um, talking to me the other night about Palin Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death, which is another movie that deals with the afterlife and what happens after you die. Um, this I think is one of the more unique takes, uh, that I've seen out there, certainly in a mainstream Hollywood film. Where it, it, it right off the bat, like there is no hell. Although, although, and then the gag is, although I hear Los Angeles is getting pretty close. Um, and there is no, they don't talk about heaven. They don't really talk about God, except in a throwaway joke. Like, Hey, proof there's a God because this thing happened. Um,
0: which by the way is one of my favorite jokes in the movie. That's (laughs) when Rip torn the, uh, the advocate in the afterlife is like, Oh, there is a God after all uh, <laughs> is, is when he's in the afterlife is, is just, is that, that that's a it's great.
1: great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fact that he's in the afterlife, but still has like that. So that's where I want to start. Like what were your, your, your thoughts and, and views on the amount of world building that goes on to create this kind of understanding of, of, of the afterlife uh let's let's talk a little bit about that
0: I mean it is the thing for me that is like the number one selling feature for me on this movie um Brooks has said that his idea was that he uh, he wanted to he wanted to take the religion aspects out of the afterlife and wanted to like and and I mean I believe Brooks is Jewish, um, and a lot of in you know, descriptions of heaven are much more you know Christian uh, focused, uh, and so he wanted to like, um, uh, <coughs> or what his specifically stated goal was is just like what what would a religionless afterlife look like, um, and and yes the the effort uh, then this is both in the world building from a like a a planning stage from a script writing stage, but also from a production standpoint, yeah. the amount of detail and thought that goes into this very mainstream. Like this is a, like this is more or less a, a mainstream big budget Hollywood movie that comes up with
1: this is a Warner a, brothers picture.
0: Yeah. This is, this is not like a weirdo art, uh, you know, side project thing. Like it's not like, this is a, huge well i mean i guess it only made 16 million at the box office but like it is a a high concept afterlife romantic comedy released by a major motion picture studio that alone is sort of impressive but yes just how thoughtful or just how much thought has been put into sort of designing the hell out of everything that has no connections to like there's no larger franchise possibilities for something like this in fact this reminds me a little bit of Playtime, uh, and we talked, to, mm. and some of the stuff I talked in Playtime about, like the the production design and how just big everything is how thought out and designed and wonderful everything looks and is um, that translates also for me also to over to this movie um, from a production standpoint and then from a just a conception like how do you conceive of this um, like there's even jokes about how rip torn only reads in binary um, yeah. putting the most amount of thought and effort into something that has no consequences beyond the scope of this movie i think last time we talked about it being like the most amount of effort into the dumbest things possible this isn't dumb but it is self-contained one movie we're just going to put the most amount of effort into it and uh that was what i uh both when i first watched it and enough to get the criterion uh version of this movie and then watched it again this weekend uh that was easily like the thing that i loved the most
1: Yeah. And there's, and there's, there's little things. I love that. It's not just to your point, it's not in the script. It's in the production as well. This movie uses matte paintings to beautiful effect. Some of the visual effects. I mean, it's so simple. You see them driving in a tram car, but then you see this glorious kind of urban glass city in the distance and and just how everything is so lightly arranged, um, To the tukas that they're wearing. (laughs) Uh, Everyone wears, if if, if you're a resident there, you just wear normal clothes, mainly suits. It looks like really nice suits, but everyone else wears these, these, I I thought they called them tukas or tufas or something like that. Tugas. Uh, These like beautiful kind of like gowns um, that are very flattering. The first thing that Rip Torn says (laughs) to Albert Brooks, he sits down and goes, Wow, that looks really good on you. You know, that's not a good look for everybody, but you, you know, it really sits well on you. Um, But there are these wonderful throws lines that could become problems later that help to like illuminate the whole world. So when he has his first conversation with, with, with Bob Diamond, um, who's, who's Rip Torn. So Riptorn is the kind of the adjudicator who's there to, to help him defend his life um, in this kind of informal panel. Very similar to another film I'll talk about for my recommendations, actually. Um, and when they're having the conversation, Albert Brooks asks a lot of questions that I think the audience would have. Uh, because there is there is a comment made that he is very young to be there. Almost everyone in the trams are super old. And Albert Brooks is like, well, what, what about kids? He's like, oh, kids don't have to defend their life. They're, they're children. They just move on auto- automatically. Well, what about teenagers? <laughs> because Teenagers go someplace else. Believe me, no one wants to deal with them. Um, so all these things start happening and then there's a later scene that I really loved. It's a, it's a quick throwaway line, but it's wonderful how one little line can illuminate so much more about the world building. And that's when he's with Meryl Streep and they're talking about his past. And he says, uh, did you have kids? And she said, well, I had adopted, you know, two of them. I had a young son and then I had adopted another one. Um, and then the second she says that she has kids, your brain goes, well, shit!" Like. How is she not, she's so like lighthearted in this movie. How is she not thinking about her children during this? And then she immediately says afterwards, she goes, it's so weird Um, being here. I don't, I like, I, I, I don't have any worries about that. You know, it, so they they set up Judgment City as this... First, they set it up as it's a glorious paradise where you can eat as much as you want and the food always tastes delicious and you never gain an ounce of weight. And there is like a bunch of running jokes. There's a the running joke of the second you order, the food is ready. And Albert Brooks is always like... Was you did you make that for someone else? No, we made it for you, just the way you wanted it. Uh, that's what paradise is. But with this one line, it illuminates another part of paradise that you know you leave your your grief and your connections to 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 life behind you as you kind of sit and await this judgment. Because if you don't do that, how can you have any clarity as you confront your life during the proceedings? Uh, and that's just such a beautiful moment, the way that that's done between the two of them. Uh, you don't get like something like that working like that, unless you have someone of the caliber of like a Meryl Streep, who is, is just absolutely wonderful in this movie. So all of those little things just make it, make it such a rich world. Uh, But it's so but it's a world that's still rife with humor. Like there is a running joke that, uh, you know, he has a lot of baggage he has to deal with. So he has to go through nine days of his life in his four day trial. She only has to go through four. And as the trials go on, her, like she starts later later in the day, like she throws away a comment. She's like, oh, they told me I don't need to be there till three o'clock. <laughs> uh, you know, so I'll just meet you at the end of your day. Uh, and when he goes to, he's staying at like, what I thought was a pretty decent but normal-looking hotel resort, when he goes to her resort, it is gorgeous, and she gets um, cream-filled chocolates as opposed to breath mints, and she has a jacuzzi and you know things like, like that. I mean, all those little things are gags and jokes for the humor, but they simultaneously paint this world so much more specifically than any other romantic comedy would do in this instance. And I, I I don't think that's my favorite part of the movie. Um, there are, there are other parts about it that, that really affect me and make me, I love this movie out of all reason. Um, but the world building is one of my favorite things about this movie that they take it so seriously and they make it so encompassing.
0: Um, when I was watching, uh, the movie this weekend. I was messaging you that like I was like almost having some kind of weird existential crisis just even watching like the supplementary features, um, <clears throat> for this uh, for the Criterion version. And specifically, what I was referring to is that there is a uh, there is an, uh, a video essay um, by a theologian and movie critic named donna bowman um and she basically goes into and i and this is something that i had not picked up on when i watched it the first time but the second that she started laying out sort of her thoughts on how this movie may not have like brooks may not have intentionally set out to make this a part of his uh his vision for the movie but the way that she basically maps uh existentialist thought into uh how this movie works and operates it just sort of like immediately like that that was what sort of uh crystallized everything for me she invoked uh my boy soren kierkegaard uh for whom i have a deep and unreasonable uh affection for um and specifically talking about how for uh for albert brooks who lives like this the whole movie and this is part of like what is very repeatedly and often stated in the movie is about how Albert Brooks lives in fear and how most of the decisions are. The question is, is how many, how much of his life is made out of, uh, even when he's doing quote, the right thing, is he doing it from a place of fear as fear. opposed to a place of, you know, just, uh, he's always like looking like the question about nine days versus 12 days or four days, that kind of stuff. Right. He's always, he's always super alert and measuring and comparing. And so like, you notice that like his resort what's normal, yeah, yeah. What is like? What is? What am I supposed to be doing? Um, like, what his resort is not as good, but he notices that her resort is uh, considerably better. Um, he's always uh, uh, he, he's always sort of like trying to hedge his bets and uh, um, make calculated decisions. Meanwhile, Meryl Streep has absolutely no compulsion about like looking silly because she's eating an insanely long piece of uh, uh, pasta that he keeps telling her to like, you know, just just cut the noodle, cut the noodle. And she's, she's not cause she doesn't care. Right. Right. And, and to
1: be clear, he's telling her to cut the noodle because his prosecutor is in the restaurant watching them. Yeah. And again, it stems from a place of fear. He doesn't want to be embarrassed and he doesn't want to look bad because he thinks it might hurt his chances. And it's, yeah. Yeah, it's all fear-based,
0: and and not to turn this into a podcast uh, a ph- philosophy podcast uh, for too long. But the overall the way that she maps this onto existentialism, um, and Kierkegaard in particular is she talks about the um, how the it, for Kierkegaard uh, religious faith wasn't just about doing the right thing, but also to do the right thing like going beyond doing the right thing, and um, uh, and he, it, in the the, the term that is used is the knight of faith. And if you want to use the in the example here, Meryl Streep is the knight of faith. She's the good person, but she also enjoys life. She also like she does the right things, but not just so that she can get into you know heaven or whatever. She does the right things and is also just completely unbothered. Uh she does she enjoys nice things in life. She um whereas uh Albert Brooks is always sort of just like always just like trying to keep his eyes. Open. He's always trying to do like The ethical things but isn't necessarily um uh sort of going beyond that and uh like and 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 when they're going through the trial um or not the not trial because it's definitely not a trial but when they're showing him when when he's when they're taking him through the examples of his life he's doing a whole bunch there's a lot of cases of like well you know you got up to speak at this conference and you didn't speak well he wanted to speak but he didn't because he was scared um and uh and i mean again if even if that's not his uh brooks's actual intent is to invoke that specific level of thinking the way that she mapped it uh, the way that uh, Ms. bowman put uh mapped it onto the movie it fits perfectly and sort of immediately jumped up my estimation of the whole project because <laughs> i i <clears throat> I, I cannot state how much uh I love So Kierkegaard so that's 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 my rant for this episode
1: that was that was just enough theology and philosophy I think for a typical cinema duel
0: <laughs> yeah not to spoil the ending but eventually he is finally able to do do a single act which is able to you know overcome that fear uh it's it's uh it, it in a way that does, it doesn't feel false to for him to go for this more like I guess, sentimental type of movie, but it, it is... I, I like put, placing that kind of jerk in a movie into a larger context that can finally get him to, like, you know, tr- try and push him in a uh, in a different direction, even if it's not, you know... Again, this movie is just about people, what happens after people die. It's not... We're not going to be s- sitting here watching a franchise of the further adventures of Albert Brooks uh, in the next life, but... no. Uh,
1: No, thankfully not. Uh, The one thing that I would maybe say to that is... And I I might be taking a different interpretation of Brooks in this movie. Uh, I don't think he's a bad character at all in this movie. I don't think he's despicable at all in this movie. Um, And I think that's what draws me to this movie probably more than any of your others. I, I think this is the movie where he is, for me, by far the most relatable person. Because he is a person who's just you you said it perfectly before all of his life and choices are defined by fear are defined by anxiety are to fear uh, the fear of what if this doesn't work or even worse what if it does work right that's that's kind of the crux of the climax of the film um and it's i'll i'll briefly kind of lightly touch on this. I had the wonderful experience of watching the movie with my son this morning, getting him to watch anything with me that is not full of uh, rampaging violence and action is somewhat hard. Uh, So, you know, when he came in and I'm like, oh, I'm watching this and it's about this, he was interested. So he sat down and watched with me. Um, And the climax hinges on the night before uh, their last day of let's just call it trial um, of examination. Um, He and Meryl Streep are sitting on a couch in the lobby of her hotel. And she's like, do you want to come to bed with me? And he does. And he tells her, you know, more than anything in his life, he does. But, and he almost says it and he changes it. He's, he's afraid. He's afraid of what would happen. If, uh, if, uh, if he doesn't get to go with her, but he's also afraid of what will happen if he does get to go with her and that, that fear paralyzes him. And that is something that in my life, I am very attuned to, I am very anxious and I do have a lot of fear in my life. So I am in constant need of reminders that, you know, you don't need to live your life in fear that sometimes kind of letting go and making a choice despite the fear uh, is what it kind of means to be alive and, and to be human. And there's a great moment where that's a touching and a sad moment. And then this is what killed my son we are watching. And then it goes to the next day. And like, it's great to watch with a younger kid who does not have as much viewing as people who are somewhat older and have seen a lot more movies. So there are, there are points when you can kind of pick up like the reason they had that scene is because that's going to be used against him in the next scene. My son's only really 16. He has not seen nearly the amount of films that I did. So when Albert Brooks is sitting in the examination room and she's, and the, the prosecutor who is played by Lee Grant really well by Lee Grant, she is. Yeah. So, she's, she's great. She's <clears throat> great. She's vicious, but she's not evil, which I think is again, Kurt and Rip Turner are like an amazing pair. They are fantastic together. And then she says, I'd like to, so for the last scene I'd like to do last night. And everyone's like, What? I thought we only examine, you know, the life down there. You're doing something from here and she plays that scene and then you see his like you see him get destroyed by seeing that. And he's unable to kind of come to grips with 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 that and move past his fear. And my son's like, his brain exploded. He was like, oh my God, it's gonna and he was like devastated that like he lost his chance. And then to have the ending happen, which is now they're being shunted off into their separate shuttles and and Albert Brooks is going back to Earth and she's moving on. And he finally, despite the fear, he, he overcomes the fear. Uh, and is and it doesn't matter how terrified he is. Because they've told him things like, there are force fields that keep you from getting in and getting out. There's all these things that are happening. And the trick of the movie is not that Albert Brooks is not afraid anymore. The truth, and, and I think this is a powerful message, is that he pushes through that fear to finally get to the thing that he wants. Rip Torn makes a comment in the very beginning of the movie that is left alone, um, but permeates all the rest of the actions, uh, and it's it's used as a joke at first. And and Riptorn says, "Hey, you know, did you do a lot of charity?" And Albert Brooks goes through this whole routine of like, "Well, probably not as much as I could. I mean, I gave a lot of change to people on the street, but you don't get receipts for that, which is a great gag just in and of itself." And Torn says to him, "You know who you really should have been more generous with? You." And it it just kind of sits there and it never happens. Like nothing becomes of that for the rest of the movie until the end. And that's when he is finally being charitable to himself and pushing through that fear to do the thing that he loves. And it, and just like real life, I love this movie ends like that. He, he runs across, he's on the tram with her. He can't get in. She can't get out. He's getting electrified. He's getting he's getting electrified as this is happening. Um, he's screaming that he loves her, and then it cuts, and it's the it's Rip Torn and Lee Grant watching on a screen, and they look at each other, and they're like, "Okay, he's done it." And then it ends with the doors opening. He jumps into the tram. She, they kiss. The tram goes off, and the movie ends like that. It is so great, like with with. With rare exception, dude can end a movie like he just knows, like, I need nothing else. That's it. You saw what you needed pan out close to credits. And I think it's a I think it's a beautiful ending.
0: All right. To wrap up this episode, we'll do our usual recommendation segment and I'll kick us off. Um, The first one, uh, if we're talking about uh, Albert Brooks, is a movie that he did not uh, direct or write, but he certainly starred in. And that is Broadcast News, uh, starring uh, William Hurt and Holly Hunter as well, directed and written uh, by James L. Brooks. Uh, I mean, it's a... uh, I had to remember which Brooks we were talking about at first when we were considering this to make sure that I couldn't actually pick this as one of our main movies, but he is starring in the movie. And so, uh, I figure at least Warren's a mention here in the recommendations. Uh, I love broadcast news. It is just a fantastic movie and that should be a pretty self-evident fact. I feel like.
1: I think if you want to see, I wouldn't say it's a different side of Albert Brooks, but if you want to see how great Albert Brooks can be in the hands of another filmmaker. This is probably the film to watch. <laughs> Absolutely. He's phenomenal in it.
0: I am glad that you mentioned Drive because I forgot about that and remembered as soon as you said it I was like, "All well, right, he was really good in Drive."
1: And he um, and he plays a very different character in Drive.
0: That yeah, as far as is, you know, malleability as a performer goes, that certainly mm-hmm. speaks to it. But yeah, broadcast news um and for my second recommendation, uh if we want to talk about uh Comedies uh, that involve some romance and definitely take place in an afterlife of sorts. I mean, the successor to Defending Your Life almost certainly is the Good Place. Um, the, uh, the obviously, the way that they handle the specifics is different. Um, the it's a TV show versus a, a movie. The their concerns are are somewhat different. Though I will say that, um, like the. Without necessarily spoiling the ending, uh, the uh, of, of the good place, there is a similar. You know how the definition in your life ends with them going on to whatever comes next, and they don't know what it is. Um, the good place pulls a similar trick uh, uh, at the end. Uh, and if you're, and, and the amount of production and you know philosophical thinking that goes into putting something like this together in service of a comedy uh, is. Uh, is certainly to me like the most obvious uh, reference point for something that might be in the vibe of defending your life. Mm.
1: Have you ever watched good place? No, I have always wanted to, uh, and my wife watched it, uh, but it was, during a time where I was so focused on movies, I was like, I do not have time for television shows, especially one that now I have to like watch a hundred episodes of, um, but for some reason I've now since gotten back into, Oh, I like to watch television shows. So that is one that is in my queue and is still available. I think pretty readily on streaming. So I do intend to catch up with it. Uh, if for no other reason, then I'm a big Ted Danson fan. So
0: Ted Danson is very good. in Yeah. This show.
1: I, I've heard that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Chris? What, uh, what do you got for us this time?
1: Um, I'll do three real quick and maybe one because we talked about it a little bit, uh, on the episode we'll touch on a little bit more in depth, but, um, first I will talk about the non Albert Brooks one. Um, I am still catching up very much on 2023 films. Uh, I do not go out to the movie theater very often. Uh, Again, uh, see my earlier piece about the tremendous amounts of anxiety I have in public places. But uh, I did finally catch up with Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's latest m- I- magnum picture uh, starring Killian Murphy, Matt Damon, uh, 800,000 other famous people, some of which only have one or two lines. I saw um, John Mullaney hosting uh, the um, Oscar kind of producers telecast earlier. Uh, it was, I think last weekend and he has a running joke about Remy Malik being in the film, but only like saying five words. Um, that is somewhat distracting in this film, but otherwise, um, you know, if you wanted to, if, if you had any reservations about, Hey, can Christopher Nolan make uh, a movie just about a nerdy scientist building the atomic bomb? uh visually exciting. Holy cow, yes he can. Uh I was in awe kind of watching a lot of this movie. Um I did see it in uh I got the 4K, got the 4K setup. So yeah, I wasn't in a movie theater, but I still got a pretty good picture. Uh but I left it going, man, I wish I had seen that in IMAX. Um visually glorious, um, there are some parts that, uh, will kind of stick with me forever. That ending, for example, is such an ending. I had read that Christopher Nolan knows his endings in advance and then, um, has the bones of the story, but builds the rest of the story to meet that ending. Um, And you can see that here. There are some incredible visuals, whether it's kind of this, the, the visual interpretation of some of like the subatomic things that are going on um, to these revelatory nightmares that Oppenheimer has as he wrestles with the force that he has created. Um, Really fun film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird to call Oppenheimer a fun film, but uh, uh, I was shocked at just how um, accessible it was. I, I did not think that a, a, a three plus hour film was going to be this accessible to a normal, you know, to normal movie to normal moviegoers. But I would say no to that. I think it is very accessible. I think it deals with very personal. Uh, and human things that we can all kind of relate to in some fashion or another maybe not to the escalated level that these things happen in but uh, and super credit to robert downey jr holy crap he plays a really good bad guy i was shocked at how unvain his performance was Uh, when you're so used to the guy being tony stark uh, to see him here play a very different role was really wonderful Great movie. i
0: will uh, for me that's what i wanted to jump in and say when you said like a host of famous people i was like if we get out of this conversation without having said the words robert downey jr i will be mad because for me <clears throat> when i watched oppenheimer i thought that it was a well-made uh movie and it was uh, uh and it was going to be fine but nothing that necessarily was going to like light the neurons of my brain on fire uh and then in the back half of the movie once robert downey Jr. once the nature of what who robert downey jr's character is how his character impacts the plot and in fact the whole structure of the movie why we're here what we're doing what is motivating him once that sort of comes into focus i had to restrain myself from cheering in the movie theater because it was like it i mean if I invoke the movie Amadeus, you'll understand why uh, this, uh, why why the ending of that hits as hard for me, um, just in terms of the, how his character relates to, uh, to Oppenheimer. And that for yeah. me is like, and again, in a movie that is otherwise still pretty good, uh, RDJ was just like heads and tails, like my favorite part of the whole thing.
1: Yeah, uh, I might be inclined to agree with you. Um, I probably liked the film, more than you did, but I think the real value of the film... Uh, I think you nailed it. It's in its construction. It's in the fact that, like, when you find out the Robert Downey Jr. stuff and you see how now, how the film, you may have been confused. Why is it going back and forth? Why is some of it in black and white? Why is some of it in color? Why some of it here? Why once are all these trials
0: that, happening? Like, what are all yeah, these different well,
1: trials? Well, they're happening? not trials. Let's uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's bring it back to the episode. They make it very clear. No one's on trial here. This is just an informal hearing, right? Uh, but once you realize what's actually happening um, and you see, like, and I think this is Nolan's particular genius. It's in plot construction. It's not always in execution and it's not always in performance, but he nails a lot of it here, um, with, with Downey, uh, with the construction. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, for, for me also coming away, I, I enjoy watching a film once a little bit of, distance has passed and not everyone is talking about it, then I can just settle down and really enjoy it. Um, I did the same thing with Barbie and I had a tremendous time there. I probably still like Barbie more than Oppenheimer. So if I'm going to do the Barbenheimer, the Barbie part comes first. Um, certainly not my favorite movie of the year by a long shot, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And I, 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 I'd be lying if I didn't say, I was like kind of riveted in my seat for the, the, the time of it. Um, Let's talk about the other two really quickly. Uh, let's get back onto Albert Brooks. Uh, I highly recommend if you want to get a great overview of Albert Brooks's life, um, check out Albert Brooks' Defending My Life, the new documentary. It's on HBO now, uh, directed by Rob Reiner, who, for people who may not know, is Albert Brooks' best friend. They've been f- best friends since childhood. Um And it comes across uh, the best parts of this movie. This documentary is not perfect. Uh, Every time a talking head shows up and there are a lot of talking heads, Chris Rock is there. Sarah Silverman is there. um, Jon Stewart is there. I I do not care. Like I would have preferred this be a documentary where it's just Rob Reiner talking to Albert Brooks and interspersing it with clips. I think that's a much more enduring and informative and, and, and visceral piece of filmmaking. You get that, so go see the documentary for those things, to see two best friends reminisce over 40, 50 years of of um, of of work. Albert uh, Brooks has an insane life. Uh, when you're 14 years old and Carl Reiner goes on to a late-night television show and they ask him, who's the funniest person you know? And Carl Reiner says, my son's best friend, Albert, is probably the funniest person I know. That's huge. That's <laughs> Uh, It is huge. And when you hear about like some of the stuff that Albert Brooks did as a kid, uh, his first time going out on stage uh, with the help of Carl Reiner and doing a bit that is hilarious. When you hear about his life, he comes from a showbiz family. Um, To tie this back to Oppenheimer, Albert Brooks' real name is Albert Einstein. (laughs) <laughs> Which I think is always funny. Uh, something else that people don't really realize all the time, um, and may he rest in peace, Albert Brooks's brother is David Einstein.
0: John breaking in here in the edit just to say that I corrected Chris and that it's Bob Einstein, not Dave Einstein. Carry on.
1: And if you don't know who David Einstein is, maybe you know who Super Dave Osborne is, uh, the the stuntman comedian. That was Albert Brooks's brother, and he's in a lot of Albert Brooks's movies, and they talk about him in The Thing as well. Um, but it's a really entertaining look at Albert Brooks's life and kind of why he did some of the things that he does. Um, interestingly, the movie that they talk about that resonated for me the most is Mother, um, and he talks a lot of because at, you, you learn so much of the doc documentary about what his family life was like and then that branches into how much of that influenced mother and what happens in mother and him and rob reiner talk a lot about that uh and it's great Uh, not so much about some of the other movies but there's a whole nice chunk about mother so if you're a fan of that film and i am um watch the documentary just to hear those 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 pieces but really just watch it just to see two old friends have a really illuminating conversation it's great
0: those are some excellent uh, recommendations. Uh, before we sign off for the day, uh, we should mention a thing that's happening over on cinemaduel.com. Uh, by the time that this episode goes up, the first of our series on uh, uh, Chris and I teaming up to write about the filmography of Mr. Kira Kurosawa should be up. Uh, the series is called Something Like a Filmography, which is a reference to uh, Kurosawa's own autobiography, so Chris tells me. Um <laughs> and so the uh the first uh uh movie should be sanshiro sanshiro Shug- sugata i've never actually said those words and I'm we've talked about now, it
1: a lot and we've written about it but we don't say it out loud
0: we never actually said those words so yeah, those, sugata. that that first post should be up by the time uh you see it and the the second one is going to be up uh not long after our goal is to do uh two movies a month uh posting on the 15th and 30th of each month. We'll see how that goes as we progress, especially in the month of October when Chris and Dan are doing their uh, Hooptober madness. But, uh, you know, this is a a thing we're trying. Uh, I was glad that Chris suggested it, and he was kind enough to let me sort of shoehorn my way into a project he was going to work on. So thanks, Chris.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. I think, uh, I mean, it's it's no secret that really... Our Love of Kurosawa kicked off Cinema Duel. It's the first podcast that we kind of talked about movies, and it was the genesis to kind of create all this. So as I was thinking about writing projects to do, I wanted to do something a little bit long-term like your Varder piece, Um, and Kurosawa just made sense. So for the next year plus, because there are 30 films, and I think now with my – Procurement of Rhapsody in August. I think we have access now to all thirty, so we should be in good shape.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think we now officially don't have any gaps left, so yeah. that's uh, <laughs> that'll that'll be
1: good. Uh, but everything else you said, dead on. Uh, it's going to be brief. It's going to be casual. What we'll probably do moving forward is we'll make kind of quick mention of it here. Um, but the first two are already done and scheduled for January. That's uh, Sancho's Sugata and The Most Beautiful, uh, and we'll keep going on with it. So uh, appreciate uh, any of you out there who want to check it out. Go to Cinemadual.com and you can read them there.
0: Yep. And for now, we'll uh, say our farewells. Chris, uh, as uh, I'm currently going through the cold business right now, I hope that uh, it uh, manages to knock uh, to not knock your power off or, uh, <laughs> or threaten to cut your power off. So you have to turn off all your, you know, electronics and doodads uh, as as I was told to do. Um, but it's always good to connect with you and hope you stay safe and warm and take care of yourself.
1: Same to you, sir. And uh, thanks to everybody out there who listens to the podcast. Have a great 2024. And uh, we will see you next time. So, bye. Bye.